You are listening to History Man, the platform for historians, authors, and museum directors to tell their stories of the American Revolution, walk in the footsteps of heroes, and proclaim freedom reigns. On today's episode, we're again with Jeff Baggett, author, speaker, parson, and living historian from Cadiz, Kentucky. <laughs> Close. Close we, enough? We say Cadiz. Cadiz. Cadiz, Kentucky. Cadiz, Kentucky. Yeah. And not to be con- uh, confused with Cadiz. Spain? No, and in Ohio, it's Cadiz. Same spelling, but yeah, they say Cadiz. So I, I found that out at an event in Ohio last year. Well, we have, uh, <laughs> we're, we're actually meeting it uh, in Hopkinsville as we take these episodes. What a, what a nice little town. Yes. We appreciate you sitting down with us. Uh, before we get started and talking about your books, uh, I want to give a shout out to our affiliate friends, southerncampaigns.org specializing in peer review articles and research from the Southern Campaigns of the American Revolution and Long Gone LLC on Facebook that specializes in genealogical research and battlefield interpretations out of Camden, South Carolina. So Jeff, you've written a number of books and we've had a couple of episodes with you. Tell us a little bit about some of these books and where our listeners can find them. Best place, uh, as always, on Amazon.com. Just plug in Jeff Baggett. Jeff with a G. It, I've been called Geff, Goff, Geef, Goff, and Goof all my life. People don't know what to do with G-E-O-F-F, but, uh, but just look me up and you can find my author page and all my books are there. Some of our past episodes with you, we've talked a lot about the genealogical research that you have done. You've done some on your own family and on your wife's family, from her German ancestors in Pennsylvania and Maryland to uh, your Scotch-Irish ancestors in right. Mecklenburg County and yep. in uh, in North Carolina, right there at the border. To there's something about some ancestors on the Mississippi. Right, right. My wife's French people. Yes. My wife's French people. Yes. So you were telling me a little bit about a, another story that I think our our listeners will find interesting, and, and you've got a line of books that are for children, correct? I do, I do. As um, And my wife was the impetus behind that. You know, I, I wrote Brothers and Warriors first, and um, I do so many programs in, in area schools in Kentucky. Of course, I've been in schools in Kentucky, Tennessee, uh, Missouri, gosh, Illinois, uh, where, wherever they'll have me, I do a, a hands-on experience the revolution program and how would they get a hold of you for that oh uh, well go on my website jeffbaggett.com and i've got a contact link there or they can actually in kentucky they can go through kentucky humanities that's that's the best way uh, for me there uh, but just get in touch with me if i can travel and if i can especially tag a couple of events together you know it, it makes it uh you know worth worth all that while of, of hitting the road and being away from work and and, and those sorts of things but I've done so many school programs, mostly in Kentucky for fifth grade classes, some eighth grade, because that's when this time period is covered. And my wife encouraged me to consider writing something for that age group. And I was a little stymied at how to do that at the beginning. But uh, out of my first book, Bro- Brothers and Warriors, there's a youngest brother of the three named William. And she, and she basically said, well, why don't you do something with William? And unlike my novels for for the adult audience where i try to stay true to form on all historically uh with the events and timelines with the younger readers books i elected to have fun 
And so I try to write the kind of stuff that I like to read when I was a kid. I, I was weaned on the Hardy Boys. I still have, I'm, I am truly a geek. I have all of my Hardy Boy books, especially right now. I even have some Nancy Drews. I try not to tell too many people about the, having those. Great stories for kids and stuff. So if you're writing from that genre or that... that well, uh, it's that, that mindset. That I, mindset. That's, that's the age target I was going for, the yeah. 10, 10 to 14. Um, because I was, uh, with that age group, you can still develop a, a story and can have a little complication to it. It's not, you know, like 10 or 12 words a page. I mean, you tell a, a, an adventure book kind of story. And so I wrote Little Hornet because the Charlotte Mecklenburg was called the Hornet's Nest. And right. so whatever name I assigned to the character like that, the, the little nickname, I wrote Little Hornet. My second book was Little Warrior. And that's a connection to a Native American character in, in the grown-up book, actually. So they tend to be children from the families that are the stars of my novels. So I pick a child character. Sometimes for my kids' books, I have to alter their age a little bit. I might have to accelerate them in age a little or drop them a little. But uh, I, I connect it back to that family unit. And so it does kind of give a unique opportunity for grown-ups to read their grown-up story and kids can read the kids' story. The problem I have is sometimes people will buy them both, and I've had the uh, adult readers will read the kids' book first, and they blow up the ending in the big book. I'm like, don't do that. Don't do that because you're going to arrive at the ending a whole lot sooner than you wanted to. Um, but, yeah, I, I like reading for that age group. I've written a couple of Kentucky frontier adventures as well um, about as I'm discovering child characters during the Revolutionary War period that did important things. I want to tell those stories as well. So like who? My first one was a character I discovered completely by accident. Her name was Betsy Johnson, and she was a hero of Bryant Station in Kentucky, which was just a frontier post near what's present-day Lexington. And in 1782, in August, that uh, post came under siege and attack by a combined force. I think it were Wyandotte, Shawnee, and there were also British Canadian Rangers involved in the group. Over 300, as best I could tell, brought that fort under siege. It was right before the Battle of Blue Licks, which was a very traumatic loss for American forces on the frontier in, in Kentucky. Uh, but they, they withstood that siege, and so there, there was an event there we, we often refer to it as the women of Bryan Station. They didn't have water inside the fort. And so the women volunteered, even when they were surrounded, to go out and walk that f however many quarter of a mile or so down to the, to the river down below. Uh, and there was a spring associated. And it was a daily task for the women to go and get water and haul it back to the fort. And so they volunteered to pretend like the natives weren't there and to go and do it again. They were doing so under the hope that they weren't trying to get the women. They were there to smoke the men out. And, and they did this big march and pretended they weren't being watched and took an hour or so and fetched water and brought it all back to the fort. And, and they did it. And Betsy Johnson was one of those girls with her mom and her little, little sister who carried a little piggin of water as well but then that night they came under concentrated attack the natives tried to burn them out she wrote first-hand accounts because she was very young right. and there was things that she wrote in letters and, and, and writings uh, but uh, there was a when they were trying to burn out with fire bombs they were trying to catch the rooftops of the cabins on fire and the rooftops angled downward 
into the compound just so that arrows and things would kind of fall harmlessly down into the compound. And a, a, a firebomb rolled off of one of those cabin cabins and landed in a sugar trough, which was a makeshift cradle that held her little brother. Mm. And it caught the hay and bedding on fire. And she ran across that open part of the fort under fire, grabbed one of those buckets of water that they'd hauled in that day and dumped it on him and saved his life. And his name was Richard Mentor Johnson, and he went on to become vice president of the United States under Martin Van Buren. Well, you cool? can't make it up. You can't. Hollywood doesn't write it this <laughs> no. good. So that's and, and it really happened. Right. You know? Yeah. I think that's the that's the beautiful thing about these stories. And I have talked to Charles Baxley from Camden, right. uh, who is the chairman of the 250th anniversary of the Revolutionary War in, in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Talked to him about that. These characters in the American Revolution or the history of America are really, in today's genre, would be these superheroes that you see right. in Marvel Comics right, right, or right. DC Comics or whatever. Right. That They were real-life superheroes yeah, in many yeah. respects. And, and endured things and saw things. That's right. You know, we, we uh, my, my second book in that series I called Always Looking for... Well, I called that first book, by the way. It's called A Bucket Full of Courage. Okay. Yeah. That's How what, apropos. Yeah, because she hauled water from the well, you know, while being watched, and, and she saved her brother's life. Uh, and there, there are a lot, lot of things. She wrote several different things in personal correspondences I was able to glean some facts from. The, the second one I wrote I called Always Looking for a Home, and I wrote that about the sons of Squire Boone, who was Daniel's brother. And he was a frontiersman in his own right. Everyone knows about Daniel Boone because, well, Fess Parker played him and he wore a coonskin cap and and had a really horrible Hollywood wardrobe in the 1950s, right? Um, And totally the wrong kind of guns for the period and all those kind of things. So everybody knows about Daniel Boone, but but Squire, his his family, I have all the documents that show where they stayed here for so long, and it's book wrote, and they're here, they were here, they were here. They they moved like every year and a half, two years. When they came to Kentucky, they didn't stay put. Well, In I, fact, he and and Daniel Boone were, came back from a trailblazing trip, and that's when they packed up the family and left the Yadkin River Valley in North Carolina and and came to Kentucky. But then they didn't stay put. They Boonesboro for a while and. And, and this station, Logan Station for a while. And, and then the, finally they settled up near what is uh, Shelbyville, uh, Kentucky, and it, was, and it was actually Squire Boone Station. And they came under attack, and, and a large column of folks were evacuating from there to uh, another station. And you have an event called the Long Run Massacre, where they were that column of civilians and families was attacked for this, over this great, long run this great distance miles and miles from and where to where I, I can't recall it was from squire Boone station but i can't remember where off the top of my head they were headed back they head back toward louisville I, I think i would have to go back and look at my notes i just can't recall but they have an event commemorating long run here in kentucky every year but the nine-year-old son i think he was nine isaac was on that in that he fought his way out of the long run massacre a nine-year-old, and and survived by clinging to the tail of a mule when it swam across the river. And then they say, legend has, he came out cussing because he lost his good rifle in the river, you know, that he, he was mad. 
and you know, and I can't, you know, I can't imagine nine years old. Nine these years nine, old. you know, eleven year old, fourteen year old. You know, the oldest son they sent him off to to Vincennes when he was fourteen to learn French so that he could be, be have you know business contacts up there. It's stuff that is so far outside of our realm of of imagination. That's right. That's right. To that people could do and that children could do. And so I, I like to try to bring those things to life in my kids' stories as as much as possible. Although I confess I have as many grown ups that read my Kentucky books now as as kids, but uh, they're was, written for that fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade audience. What a great audience though. I mean that's 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 some prime time for kids to learn to read and stuff. And, sure. And, and that's who I encounter a lot at that. events. When mm-hmm. Kim and I, uh my wife and I, we have a bookshop. We call it the Cocked Hat bookshop and and when we do living history events and people can and, and I that's where I meet so many kids and you know, and so many come back. You talk about Camden. We love the event in Camden. Mm-hmm. But I have a little boy Gosh, I should remember his name. I can't remember because I, I meet so many people. But I've watched him grow up ever since we started going to Camden. He was just this little bitty fellow. Is that right? And every year he comes back to see me. That is great. At Camden and wants to know what new what new books I have. You've got another. You've got an event coming up in Savannah, outside of Savannah, I believe, in February. Yeah, in right? February at the Wormslow Historic Site, they do a uh, Wormslow Colonial Trade Fair, and they're actually doing a school day. This year on Friday, okay. which we're pretty excited about that, all and, right. and then they'll have an all-day Saturday, Sunday, Colonial Trade Fair, and I'll be parsoning for the Sunday services for the participants. Uh, it's a it's a government-owned site, so I don't know if they're how open they are or if they can even have something for the general public. Uh, I, it's different different places. Sometimes sure. I'll do two services: one for participants reenactors only and then one for the general public it just depends on the environment so of all the stories that you have researched have we covered your favorite my favorite fiction story was one i I talked about during our during our downtime my uh my georgia story um i had an ancestor a fifth great grandfather robert hammock and he's the he's the his family, they, they are the focus family in my second novel, Partisans and Refugees, set in Georgia. A lot of folks aren't familiar with Georgia. Bloody, bloody, horrible civil war right. in Georgia. And it was the one colony that was basically under the control of the British throughout the war. Uh, so it was very much a guerrilla war that was fought there. But that, that ancestor of mine, Robert Hammett, the year after he was married, they were still in Virginia, 1764, 65, uh, he received a, a bequest from his mother's father, his maternal grandfather, and uh, it was he, he was the only grandchild named in the will, and he received a four-year-old slave boy named Frank. Okay. And as far as I, I tell everyone when I recount the story, I, I, my, my saying is it's the only mention of Frank ever in the universe. There's no other mention of Frank the slave anywhere. And, it, and they were pretty particular by saying it was an African African yes. boy, not yes. a not an indentured. No, nope, not indentured. Ireland or anywhere like he that. He was he was a slave. He okay. was and it used the language of the period said a Negro child named Frank. Okay. And I didn't know what to do with Frank. Although when when I read that at first, I thought, how can I bring Frank into the story? Because I don't know anything about Frank. But I thought, well, that's the only mention of Frank. I can do whatever I want. And so that became my little spark of creativity of, of this character that I got 
to completely assign a personality to and a destiny. And so he grew up as an important character in my story and became and was an important element in that family. And in my portrayal, it's a novel, but in my and it but it's something that happened very much in real life in the American Revolution, especially in the South, where the slave went off to war with their master. Or was signed over in lieu of right. in, as a substitute for, Correct. and that was a recognized thing to do, to sign Correct. over a son or a relative or a, or a slave as a substitute. And so I, I was able to bring that element into the story of introducing uh, how people of color served. And they served on both sides. They did. Um, um, and doing my research for that, I discovered... Uh, uh, an entire, there, I guess, I think there was an entire uh, regiment of, uh, oh, where was it? Was it Rhode Island had an incontinental regiment that was entirely, almost entirely of African descent? Uh, there was a regiment called the Bucks of Massachusetts that was of African descent. In the uh, Revolutionary in War. In the Revolutionary War. Fighting for American independence. Fighting for American independence, yeah. And so, and that and resonates. It does. That is so important for our, you know, for we, our and, listeners to hear. And, and I've, I've mentioned a couple episodes back. I'm in the Sons of the American Revolution proudly. So I was Kentucky president for for a year. Mm-hmm. I'm ex president. That's the sweetest words in the world. Ex president, <laughs> but uh, proudly served and, and still very much active in the organization. But we have a chapter in North Carolina that is comprised entirely of men of African descent, and they all descend from a single patriot, as best I understand, documented. It is, uh, it is gonna be my pleasure to get up with those, that chapter. Awesome, yes, so you know out. about them. And they, this, is, this is one of the premier episodes. I'm, you know, I'm hoping to get about three or four episodes out of well, this Well, you group. should, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm super excited but about this. I, I love finding those there's actually a, a monument to the uh, men of color in Wilkes, I think it's Wilkes County, Georgia, who served the American cause in the revolution. There's a monument on the on the court square there. Really? To, yes, yes, you need to check that out. I do need to check that and, out. And um, so I, f- I found that nuance in, in my study. And another thing I wanted to do in my research was to look a little bit more at the women. And then it became like my holy grail to prove a female patriot ancestor in the revolution and it was hard to do but i've proven two now are these like stretches in the imagination or no you no actually... i actually proved them at with enough documentation that they are recognized by the sar now nice yeah uh, one was through uh, that robert hammock that i described okay. in georgia his wife was milanor millie jackson hammock and i actually found uh in the Indian depredation claims filed in the 1810, 1820 range, where they filed for reimbursement for losses during the American Revolution, during the fight against the Creeks. And in those claims, she described her taking part in defending their home against a Creek attack and the loss of their animals. And, and so there was, there was my first female patriot proven by by testimony in a government document and then another was a little bit more roundabout interesting but you know my my soldiers and martyrs book about the james billingsley the the uh, pastor lay preacher 
who right. was, was hanged. Right. Of course, uh, there's a DAR chapter named after him, but he's not recognized anymore as a patriot technically because that, that Bible's lost. There's no actual document. It's con- considered family lore, family legend. But I, Elizabeth Billingsley, his widow, did not remarry. And she appears on one very prominent tax list in Randolph County in 1779. And that tax was entirely to go in support of the American cause of independence against Great Britain. So she helped fund the cause. And then another case, I have the document in this file here somewhere. Um, before her death, she swore out a will, and it's really interesting. Her her bequest was to my ancestor Walter, her son Walter Billingsley, and her and her youngest son Basil Billingsley. She bequested unto them her still. Nice, <laughs> nice, right? So that was very unbaptist of her, right? Uh, but her still, uh, it was for medicinal purposes, I'm sure. That's how I wrote it into my story. And actually, the still is in that book. It's well, a, I'm not pretty, sure the, the it was still, but Baptist at that time. Not at that time. <laughs> no, 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 no. But uh, but in order in 1782, in order to swear a will in North Carolina courts, okay, one had to swear their oath to North Carolina and to the United States of America. To North Carolina and the United States. Well, to North to the North Carolina government, it was by assumption to the United States okay. because it was the government of North Carolina. And so that was a second. So I had two documents of, you know, one is by inference. The other is actually a pay. Uh, I'm by imagining pay. you getting up in the morning at eight o'clock in the, you know, and you're getting down in the road and you're going right over to the archives and you're spending all day in the archives. It's like, yeah, I love it. I've traveled a long way. So much is available online now, yeah. but, but that was, that's, a, that's another thing altogether. It's just, there, there were women who participated. Some are documented. There, there are probably women who bore and endured uh, a lot more than some of the men. Actually, sure. Sure. you can imagine what they went through. So I, I love being able to, to actually have a document that proves something. And and if it's no one will ever know that but me, you know, yeah. or whoever listens that I proved that, and it's in it's in the records in Louisville with the SAR that these women. I have certificates with their names on them, Patriots of the American So for our listeners, I mean, you've talked about the SAR, and you've talked about the DAR. Are there any other groups uh, associated with the American Revolution? SAR would be Sons of the American Revolution. Sons of the American Revolution. DAR is Daughters of the American Revolution. They're kind of brother-sister entities. I see. Um, Totally different, but, but yet very, very work in conjunction with one another a lot. Um, there are some other things. My wife and I are both members of a unique organization called the Descendants of Washington's Army at Valley Forge. And so that's uniquely for people who can document an ancestor that wintered at Valley Forge. Oh, that's a pretty large number. More people could be in it than are, I'm, I'm certain. But we actually we do an encampment at Valley Forge each summer. We call it an encampment. It's at the Radisson Hotel and Casino or something like that, you know, so it's not much of an encampment, but it, it's right there at the premises. That sounds and, like my kind of encampment. Yeah, and we're going back. a queen size or a king size bed to go along Right, with. but we do, uh, we, we go there with that organization, and like this year we'll be going into Philadelphia and doing uh, 
tour, go to Independence Hall, uh, uh, kind of a back. I think they're talking about a behind-the-scenes tour at the Museum of the American Revolution. I'll be doing a, a colonial worship service for the group on Sunday. And we're actually taking part in the walkout. That's the, in June, it's on the anniversary of when the Army departed Valley Forge. Okay. And so they have uh, a reenactment of the walkout. So those of us who do live in history are going to address that day and take part in the evacuation or the walking out from Valley Forge. And so that's a lot of fun. They're different. There's a descendants of, of uh, the Battles of Kings, Battle of Kings Mountain. Mm-hmm. And I recently discovered a Kings Mountain ancestor and, and joined. When you get into this stuff, you know, you, you just geek out and start getting involved in way too well, many Well, your things. passion is infectious, yeah. that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, I, it's and just, I know our listeners uh, love this stuff. So, well, thank you so much. Tell us a little bit, tell our listeners again how they can reach, reach you and reach your books. Um, well, my, my website is Jeff Baggett, uh, G-E-O-F-F-B-A-G-G-E-T-T.com. Um, I have all sorts of links and information there. They can plug in that name in the search bar on Amazon and, and find me there. And, and most of their logo, if they want something from a local, you know, if you have a Barnes and Noble or something, they can get them. They'll have to order them in usually. Um, but you can get them in, in most of the most major booksellers. You can get those books, but I re- really recommend Amazon. They tend to be the best about it and the quickest right about, about right. getting them to you but yeah. well jeff thank you for sitting down with us well it's been a been a joy indeed